0: Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Edward Assel, and it's, uh, it's been a little while since we've we've done a show here, but I, I needed to get back to it. Um, for those of you that follow me on social media, uh, you know that uh, I had to close two of my restaurants due to COVID-19 and a complete and utter lack of support and organization from the government. And so uh, I had to force myself to kind of get back off my ass and, and kind of recalibrate the reason I do still love this business. And uh, no better way to do that than with Robin Miller, uh, who's joining me today uh via zoom we're still doing our remote uh socially distanced podcasts
1: joining from dc man how are you doing i'm doing great doing great day off just you know getting my chores done relaxing i'm glad to be here
0: yeah we were just chatting a little bit before the show and um we were talking about you know the shutdown and everybody taking time off for covid but you you did not you you've worked straight through it just as i did
1: yeah i think uh we, I remember uh, as a company, we own, we own two different properties. And as a company, we had a meeting two days before the hard lockdown started. And we were like, this is going to happen. This is what we're going to do before this happens. We hadn't been announced yet. So we we're just kind of like, we have to take our own safety measures. The government hasn't really instituted anything yet. So this is our new policy moving forward. And literally, I think it was the very next day where we got the call that everything was over. And we were like, oh, new plan altogether. We're not like, forget it. We got to figure this out. So we took like a 24-hour like hiatus. And then we all got phone calls that night explaining our new responsibilities and we all went to work. Um, so a lot of the staff who were front of house now are back of house. You were doing food prep. A lot of people became delivery drivers. We were coordinating all sorts of stuff for, you know, in different areas that we were not familiar with. So we had to learn new jobs. We had to develop new systems. Um, you know, learn how to do, you know, online ordering and managing all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was, it was a wild time and it was a lot of hours, but... Well,
0: important to note too, you're, so uh, we didn't uh, mention where you worked. You're the bar manager of one of my favorite places in DC, uh, Copycat, uh, which has been mentioned several times on the show. And um yeah, the, I mean, the vibe in that place, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's upstairs, you've got a, it's pretty tight space. It's definitely not the kind of place where you could pack in during, um you know, a quarantine like this. So... I think that pivoting has been the big challenge
1: for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bar, you know, it's not a restaurant. Um, or it was now it's a restaurant. I feel it's a cocktail bar. that serves amazing food is how I describe it. But we have, we've been forced to embrace the idea of being a food centric establishment. In fact, our sales are split almost 50, 50, uh, food, food, alcohol, pre COVID. It was like 80, 20, maybe, maybe a little bit more skewed than that. It was wild. Um, yeah, so we've completely shifted our whole operation and we do table service now, which is something that we didn't really do before. It's it's a completely different establishment Yeah.
0: Yeah, strangely enough, I, we had um, just last fall, we converted my Thai restaurant from table service to counter service. And now <laughs> we're right back to table service again because we can't crowd everybody around a counter
1: it's a whole thing and like it's really tough because we look at we're trying to like find a litmus for like what's normal as far as like our, our sales and our operations and people keep referencing you know last year last summer two summers ago like talking about like how they did things then and then we have to be like guys like doesn't work that way you have to have a completely different staffing like you have to have enough bodies here to maintain tables it's not a it's not a bar anymore you can't come to the bar and order like you said you have to to go to each table you can't like in dc at least the laws are guests can't be standing they can't be walking around same same here all these things so it's like it's definitely been it's like you said it's a whole new business like it's it's like we reopened a new restaurant in a current currently existing restaurant like from top to bottom
0: so how are you guys kind of handling um the changes or making the decisions how to how to make kind of on the spot changes to service because i was just thinking about this a couple hours ago i read like you know our weekly um Um, Indianapolis Monthly, the magazine sends out, you know, kind of dining news once a week on Tuesdays, an email blast. And it was like, you know, four places that have closed and four places that have announced a completely restructuring again, you know, for third or fourth time, some of these places of how they're running service. And, you know, I've said a lot of times to our staff and my business partner at the Inferno Room that like, there's no rules anymore. You can change every 24 hours because, you know, you just kind of do what the day gives you. And we've had to make those changes in that, um, you know, with the kind of popularity of bar and the fact that it's been an industry hangout for so long, I can imagine that, I mean, you've shifted kind of who's there on a nightly basis. and Now you're handling that.
1: Yeah. So like the, the, I, the, in order to talk about this, like there's so many variables that come into play. Like for me, the way I try to like talk to our staff is the guests come in here, not knowing the rules. They, all of them are familiar with the city guidelines or national guidelines, and they're not familiar with our guidelines. So we have to kind of set up their expectations. So no more walking in. We, we now have a host, someone who's in charge of seating. We have a, a sign that I don't love that says, please wait to be seated. Um, and we kind of have to control the room from the get go and set it up for success. So the guest has the experience that they enjoy and they're not being met with all sorts of weird pushback from us. Um, I remember early on, it was very, very hard me and the rest of the staff to cope with guests who weren't following guidelines, who who were doing what we considered unsafe. And we had to find ways to creatively diffuse and corral people to do what we wanted, you know, and like stay safe. And I remember early on, like I hated guests coming to the bar because that's, that's a rule. You have to stay safe and you can't come to the bar. And it used to really grind my gears. And then like, I had to remind myself over and over, like, they just don't know. It's not their fault. There's no point in me being aggravated by it. Like you have to set them up with the knowledge and the rules when they sit down. So now it's like, again, aggressive table service. They should never want for anything. Like my fine dining background like comes into play a lot more at Coffee Cat than I ever thought it would. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you just have to set them up with the knowledge, you know, w- you know warn them. As you're seating them, you know, giving them a, a brief little rundown, like, hey, the bathrooms are here. If you want to walk around, that's cool. Just make sure you wear your mask. We can't have you at the bar. Uh, so if you need something, please wave us down. If we're not, uh, if we're not present, we're, we're happy to help you out, whatever you need. Um, but yeah, I remember there was lots of times where guests would come to the bar and like try and take a straw. And I had to be like, hey, I'd really appreciate it if you didn't do that. And they're like, I just need a straw, man. And you're like, I know you need a straw, but you could be spreading the virus to people by like, touching their straws. And this is where all the stuff comes from. I'm like, just don't do that, please. Like, please don't do that. And it, we had to get creative about how to problem solve that. And it, it, was, it was weird. <laughs> Yeah, it's
0: still, still uh, every day. I mean, we're, we're now kind of started slowly allowing the flow of people into our our Thai place. And, it, you know, it's still mostly carry out at this point. But everybody wants to come in and, like, check the tickets and all the bags that are sitting directly in front of me. I'm like, please don't touch anyone else's food. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's,
1: it's a real thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a it's a
0: common sense thing, you would think. But, you know, yeah. with, I guess, when you're on the other side, maybe it's not. But you alluded to it. So let's go back to where you got started. because. um You've been in the business for quite a while, especially you know uh for such a young guy. I, you can tell I'm getting older right because you're in your thirties and I'm like young guy like yourself. Um, I have a baby you, face we like do share a birthday um yeah it's, it's uh, wild. I, we forget that apparently every year, and just remember it uh, on <laughs> June eleventh every year but um you've you've been you have got kind of quite an extensive kind of upscale dining background. So how did you get started um uh behind the bar?
1: um so I started in the restaurant industry when I was like seventeen, I was in busser at Outback Steakhouse. Um, uh, I was awful at my job. I was terrible. I had so much to learn. I didn't understand anything. I'm like, that's, that's where it started. And then I kind of worked my way through, uh, waiting tables. Were hosting. you in DC at this time? Uh, I've been in the DMV for 20 years. So this was in Laurel, Maryland. Initially I started working in the district, uh, when I was 20, I believe 2019 at a, a little place called bus boys and poets on 14th and V in Northwest. So as a host there and I started my serving career there as well. And that kind of transitioned into uh, leaving there eventually and working in downtown Silver Spring, um, I worked at a lot of different restaurants, different different qual- like calibers of of, of service. Um, but the fine dining element came into play when uh, I left Silver Spring and started tending bar at Casa Luca, which was one of Fabio Trebocchi's restaurants in DC. It's since changed its name under the same under the same company. So they changed their concept, but it's over on uh, New York Avenue in like the city center area. So it's kind of a higher end neighborhood in DC. And Casa Luca was supposed to be like the the the, I guess we call it the rustic food concept for a very high end Italian chef. Um, so that's where it started for me. And like, I was terrible and I had to be critiqued every day by everyone around me. And it was very hard. And then all the bartenders. Was there like a
0: passion there at that point? Like, I mean, did that ignite a passion or was it still just a job? You know, Uh, I I I know for me there was like, there was a moment at which I realized that I wanted to work in food. It wasn't like, uh, that's that's how I pay my bills, you know?
1: Yeah, that came for me at, at the previous job. I, I was inspired there by uh, a few different people that I worked with. My manager, his name was Ryan Fur. He was super dope. And one day he he brought me into the manager's office after I showed up late and hung over. And he was like, listen, dude, like, do you want this? Because if you want this, like, I can teach you. I can help you. If you don't want this, that's cool. Just realize, like, you're not going to be a part of the inner circle. You're never going to really get what you want out of this. If you're just here to pay bills, like, it's not going to be it for you. And that was kind of a wake-up call for me. And from that point on like." Again, I was terrible at my job, at the time I thought it was great, but like, I worked super hard, I was memorizing ingredients on every dish, I was winning wine sales contests every week because like, that's what I decided I wanted to do. Um, and then transitioning over to Casa Luco, I was tending bar there, and at, at one point all the bartenders left within like three weeks, and so I was the only one left, and so I just started doing all the things. I started ordering and, and doing inventory and doing menu development. And then one day they're like, so do you want to get paid for this? I was like, yeah, I really do. I'd love to be paid for this. Uh, and then they said, I, I was officially a bar manager. When I was like 24, 25 years old. Um, and then uh, yeah, so I was running a pretty high end restaurant and then they asked me to help them open Fiola Mare. They were having staffing issues. So I was picking up shifts over at Fiola Mare um, uh, in Georgetown, which is a very high end fine dining, super expensive, amazing restaurant. And so that was really another place where like I polished myself, polished my service and my style. Uh, and it was amazingly fun, super cool, different style of bartending altogether. together, very much silent service. Um, and it was, it was, it was pretty tight, but I learned how to take care of guests from all walks of life through this transitionary period. You know, I, I remember Rahm Emanuel sat at my bar, I, Supreme Court justices were walking through all the time. I met um, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg a few times. Uh, she was a lunch regular at Casa Luca. We had a private dining room. It was very private. So she would come in for lunch like every once in a while. So like, that's where I kind of cut my teeth. It's pretty dope. It was pretty dope. Uh, <laughs> Michelle Obama had dinner there too, um, but I wasn't able to go in the room. It was like they—they they basically had a list of who was allowed, and like I was not. I was ah. absolutely not allowed. <laughs> um, not for any particular reason. I don't have like, a record or anything, but like I just wasn't the person they were going to let in there. It was cool. I don't care. I was playing bar, but it was really awesome. But I, that's kind of where I learned how to how to work with people and you know read the room, read the situation. And you know, adjust your level of service and how you're going to interact with them accordingly. So that's—I hope that answers your question. It's really this from Fabio Trabocchi's restaurants.
0: It is. It's an interesting um, city that you kind of learned in as well, because there's no real room to kind of spend ten years getting it down and deciding what you're going to do. Because yeah, like you said, it's you're operating at such a high level. You I mean you're, you know, Tinning Bar, a place where you know Supreme Court justices are, are having lunch. Um, you know, you it sink or swim pretty fast. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of cities. <laughs> level and you're also i mean it's a tourist city as well so you've got um you know the international business travelers government politicians yeah that's it's just a um it's an intimidating place i would think to to be behind the bar at your first manager job
1: yeah it was surreal i, I remember when, when rob Emanuel came in the first time uh, i was making cocktails and he was sitting directly in front of the build station and uh, i go to tampa 10 to seal it and you know what it's like when you've been working all night and there's a lot of liquid in those in those, <laughs> in those mats. And when, right. sometimes when you hit them, stuff sprays up. Well, I did that and liquid went up in the air and landed on top of Rahm Manuel's head. And I looked at him with a like, jaw like, just like, I am so sorry. And he was like, whatever, dude. Like, I, I felt so bad. But he looked at me like I was an asshole. And I was like, oh, just, Oh, I'm sorry.
0: ouch. Not even sucks. forgiveness. <laughs> yeah.
1: It sucked
0: my my first like serving serving job I, I i dropped a whole tray of water um on a guest that was a regular apparently it was like my first week there and he reminded me of that experience every single time oh, he went in, in
1: that place oh yeah, I was yeah. like yeah it uh, remind uh, me i think about this every day myself <laughs> right like, <seriously>. right <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those people so that's no, it's a dope place to work i mean like i think one of my favorite like celebrity interactions was uh, i was waiting tables and uh, I have this uh, African-American guy sitting at my table, he, and uh, he's ordering a bottle of wine. He's got this very distinct voice. It's deep. And I was like, forgive me, but you sound just like Kojo Nnamdi M- uh, from NPR. And he's like, that is because I am he. And I was like, get out of here. Yeah. He talks like that. Like it's, it's so Kojo. I was like, this is ridiculous. But yeah, that was probably my favorite, like famous person interaction working in in DC. It was pretty dope. (laughs)
0: That's super cool, man. Well, it was funny when we were talked earlier in the week, you know, you were talking about how, how much of a change this has all been from, um, how did you phrase it? Your, uh, molecular bullshit and foams or whatever it was.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I spent a lot of time working on a different angle of bartending. Um, I was really into not, not to say that flavor wasn't important, but I was trying to be an innovator. I was trying to do creative, cool stuff. Cause that seemed to be what people wanted. And like, it's true. A lot of people want that. They want beautiful cocktails. They can post on Instagram. They want foams. They want bubbles. They want, you know, all sorts of ridiculous garnishes. Like they want a beautiful cocktail. And that works from a marketing perspective because you can't taste via Instagram. So having visually stunning or provocative drinks is, is a thing, you know? And so like that was an angle that I worked heavily for a very long time. Um, and it works for me, you know. I, I built like my career around that. Like I was recognized in D.C. for that. Like not that I was famous by any means, but I had I had a small amount of notoriety within the bartender community for putting out like beautiful, stunning drinks that also tasted good. Um, whereas the copycat is is not that. It's the drinks are beautiful, but we don't even put garnishes on most of our drinks. We just express peels and discard because they're already serving their purpose. There's no reason to have a floating peel in there. Like we 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 only do it for on a rare occasion. Um, so it's a very different style and. What maybe this might be going off a little bit more on a tangent, but what separates Copycat and other bars like us in the Petrovsky style is uh, understanding fundamentals and building off your technique in those fundamentals before you explore cocktail innovation. And that was very hard for me to recognize that I had been making mistakes for years, that I had been doing a bad job for years. And I understood flavor science, like I understand how how acid balances sugar, how bitterness fights about sweetness, how alcohol and sweetness can counteract each other, how you can pour, you know, like I understand that, but understanding the building blocks, the recipe structures, like the core of cocktail making has changed how I look at this and how I make drinks completely. I'm a very different bartender. I'm way more humble. Like I, I, it's, it's very different. I was such a cocky, arrogant bartender when I was like winning competitions and doing ridiculous stuff. And like, looking back, I just, ah, I just just fucking hang my head. because I didn't know anything.
0: Well, you're at that kind of age where, you know, craft became huge really fast. You were just the perfect age to be getting into it at that time. And yeah, it was, um, we kind of took a step back, you know, I'm what, 12 years older than you, I guess 13 years older than you. And just, you know, it was cool for a little while when like one or two places were like, oh my gosh, check out these cool like salt foams on, you know, well, I guess that's a bad example. Cause that really is probably the best use of a foam I've ever, <laughs> it's like the Jose Andres like salt foam like that's the exact reason why a foam should be used it's perfect um but you know and then everybody was doing it and then you started seeing 14 ingredient cocktails and again this is coming from a tiki guy so you know um but then it was like and every ingredient was infused with something else so it was really like 28 ingredients
1: yeah nothing was nothing was simple
0: (laughs) can i can i just get a daiquiri and they're like oh we don't have a blender like oh like yeah Going back to the, the basics is, you know, is important, you know?
1: Yeah. The other day someone was talking to me about it. They're like, I'm just over the air of making rose hip tonic. And I was like, I feel you, dude. That's, <laughs> that makes total sense. I'm also <laughs> over that. But not saying there isn't a place for that. I'm not saying there isn't room for innovation and creativity. But I think that we were doing things for the sake of having a complex looking menu so often. Like when you look at some of these ingredients. Well,
0: and it's hard to set yourself apart. You know, you, you need to set yourself apart, especially in a city um, where there's so much competition
1: hmm dc is pretty cutthroat it is yeah yeah there's a lot of good bars here which is great but like i said it's when you're looking at a list and you're like i don't i don't taste uh, i don't taste half of this stuff like are you telling me that there's there's lemongrass in this 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 basil you know uh pandan syrup i don't taste that at all like there's too much here i don't even know and like again it's it, it's not being about the quality of drinks and more about the experience which is important i totally get that but I don't know. The beautiful thing about Petrovsky style bars and copycat is that we go back to what matters, like how to build, how to make good drinks. And once you master that, once you're very good, I, I will never say that I'm a master of it. But There are people in my company that are very, very good at it, but I, I, I will not profess to be like, you know, the guy who's the best at this. But once you do master that, creating your own drinks, using those, that knowledge is so much easier. And you can, you can identify problems better like we just did r d for our upcoming menu and it it was so interesting watching my boss devin who's the owner and founder of copycat taste through all these cocktails we were pitching and seeing him troubleshoot it was just it's it's impressive Uh, another guy i work with eli uh he's incredible like i was was like i really want to do a drink that's a stirred cocktail with a little bit of uh, coffee liqueur and maybe some fernet he was like, interesting. And was, he's was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. Let's try this. I gave him a few things. And he's like, this is terrible. I was like, know. Oh, this is not good. Not what I wanted at all. He's like, let me just, let me just play with this. He ended up coming back to me with a recipe that was kind of a combination of a Toronto and a hanky panky, uh, with gin as the base, uh, with like our house whipped cream recipe float on top. And it was like, the most delicious thing I've had. And so long. I was like, how did you do that? You took my bad idea and tweaked it and fit it into the structure of existing drinks. It made something completely original and amazing. Is, I, I, I was not able to do that. And he, they are. like, Once you have this knowledge, you can do so much more with it with confidence. It's no longer shooting in the dark. You're now calculating and planning. He made one rendition of that drink. He made one rendition. Didn't have a second, didn't need to. He just did it. I was like, damn, dude, like, oh! Like, humbling as hell, but it was so cool. Those are the
0: fun moments when you come up with the drink, you try three or four more iterations, you're like, no, we had it right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. stop fucking with it. But you know, I think this is a good opportunity to kind of talk about the vibe of had because I've sung the praises several times. We talked with Chris Franco on the show before, I've talked about it, told stories about, you know, uh, hanging out there um, after World Class and all that. And when we came back from Martinique, we did a trip with Ben Jones and the whole Clemont and Spirebomb. Well, actually it wasn't Spirebomb yet. It was still a uh, house of Agricole um, back then. And so we, um, it was kind of a funny reason I ended up there in the first place. We had had a really, really shitty drink somewhere else and got pissed and we just really wanted a daiquiri so badly. And uh, there uh, was somebody sitting at the bar and like, Oh, well, you should, you should go to copycat. And it was like right before last call. So we hauled ass over there. And we went in, we were like, can we get three daiquiris? And the bartender was like, I'm sorry, we're just doing shots and beers now. We're like, oh, like we so badly wanted a daiquiri. And we told him the whole story of the shitty drink and the whole big debacle we had had at at another location. And um, he goes, (laughs) did the bartender look like this? And he described me, I was like, yeah. And he said, all right, I'll make you daiquiris.
1: (laughs) Oh, it's so no. shady. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So we got our
0: daiquiris. And, uh, but that was what point I noticed the menu. Now, I'm not sure how you guys do things now, but I can tell you my first impression of the place. And this, gosh, what year would that have been? 14, 15? Um, we walked in and we got our daiquiris. And we didn't realize that at that moment it was a rum focused menu. And so that was the highlight of that particular menu. But you had this really cool, like, chalkboard behind the bar that kind of showed this, like, flow chart of the menu and like the thought process of why these rum drinks were on the menu and like, you know, how they connected together. And I guess we just, I kind of exactly walked what you're
1: talking about. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. it was, uh, man, and we were
0: immediately in love. And it, at that point we we're like, well, this sucks. We got here 15 minutes before they closed. We wanted to stay sure. all night.
1: Yeah. So the, the way the chalkboard works, um, we don't have it up right now because we can't have guests walking around right, looking right. at it from their tables. So we have a, we, we have menus with the printed on there now. Devin Norman does all the artwork. He actually went to art school. So he's got like a deft hand. He's got a great style. And the menus typically, um, they're either broken up into categories. So it's very clear what you should order. It's very, it's very like idiot proof. It's like, this one is like sparkling cocktails, like sours, uh, on the rocks, stirred and boozy. Like it's very clear. Or the one that I like the most is where there's the infographic style where one of them that I loved is it has the daiquiri on the far left. And it has like almost a family tree of cocktails that branch off and cocktails that branch off those and all stem from the daiquiri. And that's one of my favorite menus to look at is you can actually track the evolution of the history of this drink. And it's so cool. And we did it with a few other menus. Um, we have others that I love where it's a pie chart next to each cocktail that show the proportions. And it's, it's so cool where it's like, Oh, so it's like, I know exactly what I'm getting. Like and part of the cat experience is edification. Like we teach people what we're doing, like a whole new ways to make drinks. And so as a bartender who didn't work there, I loved that, where I could just go there and be like, I want something like this. Like we call it the dealer's choice game. We're just like, Hey, well, what are you having today? They're like, I don't, well, I'm looking at the menu still. And I'm like, well, let me just decide for you. What do you like? And they're like, well, I normally like gin, refreshing drinks. I'm like, say less, dude, I got you. And I come out with a drink that they've never heard of before that they are going to enjoy that has, that has roots in either. It's either, it either, is a historical cocktail or it has roots in these historical drinks that fit in that category perfectly. And that's kind of like the vibe there. It's like, we, we are we are cocktail historians almost. Like we, we want we want to teach you things while you're there, not just give you a good drink. You know, it's that's kind of the beauty of it. It's it's really, really cool. And we'll make you whatever you want. That's that's kind of what it is at the end of the day. So
0: and that's what I think was the, you know probably the big draw. And it, it's become kind of uh quite well known amongst industry people and bartenders, um, uh, which made us feel comfortable immediately because it was late night. So the whole place was filled with bartenders and we went there, or every time I've been there actually. Um, but you know, you that's it's kind of tough to earn that place amongst the you know bartending community or serving community to kind of become the place you go after work and i think it's because of that that geekiness you can still get some cool stuff but you don't have to like you said you know rose hip infused tonic or or whatever i mean you don't have to you know it's not overwhelmingly complex but it's deceptively complex you know everything done well you're not hiding behind you know 14 ingredients and you know that's it. It is. It's tough to kind of earn the respect of everybody, uh, especially in, in a community like that. You know, um, I, I, I I got the, I picked up on the educational vibe immediately when we were there.
1: Yeah, it's super cool. I think part of how we're able to do that is like it's it's not a competition for us. Like we're not competing with other bars. That's just not what we do. We don't talk shit about other bars. We don't like. There's a great example from uh, one of Gary Reagan's book in the in the forward. He's talking about going to a like a, a divey bar where the chick behind the bar is in fishnets and there's bras hanging from the ceiling, and he orders a margarita, and she strains it through her fingers into the glass, and he's like, that margarita was delicious, you know, like, there's there's a time and place for every drink, and, like, I think that's part of our mantra is we don't talk shit, we don't compete, we just do what we do, and we compete against ourselves, and so, like, we're you know, always in this pursuit for perfection when it comes to our cocktails, and so I, I think that's part of why we're able to be this kind of, like, industry spy, it's like, no one feels, no one feels like they have to show us up, or, like, we're not trying to show that, it's just, it's just a good bar, you know, and, like, That's kind of what we try to do is we just want to be a bar, you know? And like we, no one goes in there, has to feel intimidated. If you want a shot and beer, we've got you. If you want a glass of wine, we've got you. But if you want, you know, fucking, you know, strawberry larchmont, yeah, I got you. Like, we'll take care of it for you, you know?
0: And that was the vibe, you know? I mean, it's it's fun. It's fun for everybody. You can tell that everybody working there is having fun and everybody on the inside is either getting off work. And I've met... Tourists there. I've, you know, met just kind of regulars, you know, that sit on the side of the bar. And every time I go to that place, I end up like meeting someone that I, I continue to have, you know, um, kind of, you know, a friendship with later on. I mean, I've, I've got three or four friends that I've met at Copycat. And I've, I've, you know, how many times have you seen me in that bar? Like five, six times. So yeah. It's a great spot. But, you know, yeah. You end up spending a few hours together and it's, I usually sit on the far end, you know, and it's, um, well, I mean, hell, that's where I met um, EJ. That was sitting next to us. Actually, I think I think during the daiquiri night. I think that was the I think it was 2015. Yeah, and uh, he happened to be sitting next to us, and he's pretty social. So he was like, "Hey, what's going on?" And we told him the story of the shitty daiquiri we'd previously had, and um yeah. So and obviously he's been on the show now since. And I mean, everybody's kind of shut down. Yeah. So it's and at, at, at that time, which is I think around the time that I met you as well, uh, you were working at Espita, Yes.
1: Yeah. So I was doing the, I was like one of the head bartenders there, just like doing the cocktail program, the mezcal program. Like my main focus there was kind of the creative cocktail side and like training. Um, And then I had a co-head bartender, James, who was really in charge of like logistics, financials, inventory. They're kind of split the workload. And then Megan was a beverage director kind of in charge of the whole thing. So um, yeah, that was a super fun, very, very educational and like formative experience for me too. Like that was one
0: hell of a crew that worked there at that time, (laughs) you know, I know everybody's kind of branched out and moved on, and, and runs their own bars all over the country now. But
1: yeah, yeah Edwin's over at Normandy Club. Uh, Megan's doing her own thing. James is operating a speeder now. I think Bismarck's in Biz, He moved to San Diego,
0: I think. Yeah, yeah. he's
1: in San Diego. Uh, he works at a bar guy. I don't remember what bar, but yeah, everyone who worked there like went on to do bigger and better things, which is like that says a lot about the kind of environment they cultivated. Uh, like hats off to Josh for 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 getting a crew who was that passionate who worked like that. Yeah, it was cool. I had a lot of fun.
0: So I mean that, that's definitely a program that I, I enjoyed heavily as well. I mean, when you what's your go-to booze when you're because you've you've worked in agave, you're kind of <laughs> doing all over the place, at copycat. Yeah, I, I worked
1: at a whiskey bar for a while too, so I, I do definitely have a lot of different passions. Um, when I'm drinking at my house, like I hate to be like so lame about it, but I I really just like cheap beer. Um, yeah, like I, I've heard this about chefs too. A lot of chefs like junk food after work. And to me, the logic behind it is like white noise. Like, I don't want to think about what I'm drinking. Like, I, I, I really just want to have something that I can enjoy and not think about. And that's kind of part of it. Um, also, like, one of the beautiful things about working in places like this, whether it's food or beverage, is that we do things you can't do at home. And so it's very hard to, like, make yourself a proper drink at home. Like, when I try and do it at my house now, it's, fr- it's just frustrating for me. I don't, like, we use Bell ice uh, at work.
0: Right, yeah, I was like, that's what I my immediately... Thought of the ice. I'm like, my ice, in my house sucks. <laughs> you we can
1: cut everything. And like I do bring ice home from work so I can make drinks here when I want. But do you think I'm gonna make a martini here? Like, absolutely not. it, it will not get cold enough. It, it it will be watery. And like, not that there's anything wrong with that kind of drink, but if I want one, I want to make one, I wanna make it really good. <laughs> so I don't do that.
0: I so find that I don't home- have the patience, you know, um, to sip a drink at home. So if I make a martini at home, I'm going to Drink like seven of them in the time that it would normally take me to drink one in a bar, because there's no one sitting next to me telling me, uh, you know, having a conversation. So I try to keep only my expensive booze at home so that I'm not tempted to, yeah, like, tap into yeah. it all the
1: time. I, I drink at home. I either drink mezcal or whiskey, pretty much exclusively, um, and normally just just on the rocks. Like I, the other thing, the other thing is I don't I don't want to clean up at home after I just spent literally my whole day cleaning at work. So I, I want to make it minimal. <laughs> it's just like Here's some great whiskey on the rocks. Good to go right now. Um, I have uh, Knob Creek Nine Year Bonded sitting next to me. It's ridiculously good. Like, ugh. And we get we we use that at work, so I I get to buy bottles, which is nice. But yeah, that's that's actually our rail.
0: So you're you're 32 years old now. So you've only been what and. Uh, in- I guess, legal to be behind a bar for the last 11 years. Um, How have you gotten a chance to travel around a bit to see some of these distilleries? I know that this is kind of one of those businesses where there's lots of trips, but there's also lots of hours to work. And it's very hard to get out and about and do those things. I was just thinking because, you know, bourbon country is so close to me. It's literally a day trip. I mean, we can be there in a couple hours.
1: It's nice. <laughs> uh, I I haven't done the bourbon thing. Uh, I did the Oaxaca thing with mezcal. Um, we got to go on like some really cool, very specific trips. It was never just like the 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 like generic bartender trip to mezcal country. Like it was always very intense, very education focused. Yes, we drank a lot, but it was like it was always like with in our free time, which we didn't have a lot of. So like I had a lot of fun going to Oaxaca. Uh, I've done like other distillery trips around here, but I feel like that's something that bartenders get to do when the brand is trying to like, I think it's almost a marketing technique. Like, I don't mean to sound shady about it, but like frequently, like I don't need to go. Like, I really don't. Like, I, I know- how You've to
0: seen make one, alcohol. you've seen them all, right? Exactly. Like, I know
1: how to make alcohol. I know how distilleries work. I understand the difference between a me and a column and like these things just don't, I don't need to go. Um, so as far as traveling, I mostly travel for food and cocktails. Um, uh, I, was, I went to uh, Italy um, with my uh, former girlfriend uh, two years ago. And so while we were there, we went to the Jerry Thomas project.
0: I Uh, missed it too. All the times I've been to Rome, it's just, you know, I end up drinking too many times or too many drinks and just don't get over there. Uh, Usually I like Franny Fritzioni because we usually get a little, uh, a little Airbnb that's just a few blocks away from there and Trastevere. So yeah.
1: No, I had had a good time there. Jerry Thomas project was cool. They didn't have very many bar seats, which is really hard for me because I want to sit at the bar. I want to see what they do. Like, It's not just about experiencing the bar. Like, I want to know what they're doing that's special. I'm always very, very like observant and like, I want to know what's going on. So like, I didn't love that I couldn't sit at the bar, but it was, they're good drinks. It was fine. Um, I also did this place called uh, La Punta um, Experimental, which is like a mezcal bar in Rome. It was wild cool. They did a great job. Um, Really fun mezcal list. The build-out was dope. It was a former wine uh, uh, house. So they had various levels of cellars and some of them they converted into like themed mezcal rooms. Like the top floor was a restaurant. The next one down was kind of like this like little clubhouse. Like It was a l- little bit more comfortable. There was couches. And then the basement was a Mezcal tasting room. It was a huge wooden table surrounded by formerly what would have been wine stores. Now they're full of bottles of rare Mezcal. And they teach Mezcal classes there, like tasting and like education, which was a very cool bar. Um, I did find then, the
0: last time I was there that there was um, quite a lot of interest and in, in, uh, almost borderline obsession at some bars with Mezcal. Um, and I don't know if it's just, be, you know, we're, it's a little way geographically closer for us to be able to get agave spirits, but you know, you think about Europe, it's much more difficult. I, I don't know if that plays into it, but I definitely, when I was hanging out and, and every time I gave the bartender a dealer's choice, I almost inevitably always ended up with a, a mezcal drink in my hand.
1: Yeah. I think that in the U S especially, we're still on the coattails of the tequila, uh, of craze. And I don't think it's ever going to stop because of the money involved in tequila and marketing, I think Europe was largely spared from that not entirely but I think they had less of like a a marketing or advertising influence and I think that a lot of the bars in Europe are trying to be cutting edge they're trying to keep up with what's going on or they are setting the trends and mezcal is a big deal like it's it's super fucking cool like it's it's you know it's without waxing too poetic about it like it's it's a very very much unique spirit to a part of the world that did it on their own you know they were fermenting agave and drinking it for thousands of years like perhaps you know, before and,
0: anyone else you know, there's there's some proof. Yeah, that- there's definitely.
1: Yeah, without getting too controversial. I remember uh, I read I read an article by this guy uh, uh, who is a researcher, a guy, a researcher in Mexico, and they would drink this stuff called. And it was like um, like a single distillation made by uh, putting their basically uh, getting their their fermented they warm and evaporating and putting cold stones over the top and collecting the residue that collected like it's the most basic form of distillation i've ever seen and it worked like they were drinking this stuff like so it's very very much like a real like unique spirit to that place that's not influenced by europe at all so like i get the craze so i I respect the fact that all europeans are into it but they, they have a really tough time getting it which is kind of frustrating for them i'm sure especially in like uh in russia and parts of europe they their ability to import it is very limited so there's only so many brands they can get which is super frustrating i'm sure the places like El Copitas bar in and, in, uh, in Russia, like they only can use so many different mezcals, which has got to be tough. I can only imagine. So you've been there? No, I haven't. I just follow them Instagram. I'm, I'm like, I'm a big well, fan. Well, you talk about, you know, cocktail tourism
0: and that's, um, something that I can relate to a lot. And I drive everybody that travels with me crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, usually if i'm even with somebody that drinks at all um they just they're more into like the spirits um or wine or something and i'm like i want to mm-hmm. see what's happening creatively with this and that's sure. how i've ended up meeting so many of you guys because i'm yeah. just like i have a list you know my wish list and i know that you know 10 of them get knocked out because once i find the place i love you yeah know, yeah you don't leave I have five or six yeah exactly yeah, i know that feeling i spent oh, god what do they spend about nine hours drinking at a Spita before world-class started. <laughs> like we, we didn't even realize the place had closed in between lunch and dinner because nobody kicked us out.
1: Oh yeah, like that. <laughs> finally
0: my business partner was like, Hey, what time's the ceremony start?" I'm like eight o'clock. We got plenty of time. And he's like, it's seven 45. I'm like, fuck, we're not, dr- <laughs> we're not dressed for this at all. And, um, and yeah, we favorite. went to world-class, uh, in t-shirts, jeans and, I didn't even have, like, my glasses on because all I had was sunglasses. When we oh, walked God. in, it was lunchtime.
1: Yeah. We went
0: We were uh, went in with Rolf, and speaking oh, of Oaxaca trips, great. he owes me one. He still <laughs> owe me a trip, Rolf. Um, <laughs> so as you've traveled around a bit, um, you know, where are some of the cooler places you've been? I mean, Rome's definitely got some cool cocktails, and that's relatively recent. Um, the yeah. first, few t- first time I went there, you didn't really have access to a lot of great cocktails. I mean, they were there, but it was a little bit harder to find.
1: Mm-hmm. That was my only international trip, really, um, as far as cocktail bars go. Around the U.S., like, probably my favorite bars I've been to. I'm trying to remember. We had a really good time at uh, this bar called... Um, i trying to think. God, sorry, I'm drawing a blank right
0: now. No, it's funny, but you like, you just hit the nail on the head, right? Like I had a really good time. It's not like I had the best drinks I've ever had in my life at this place or that place. It's always about, I had a really good time, which is exactly how I found your bar. Yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> exactly how, um, I remember, you know, a lot of my favorite bars in Seattle or Portland or Chicago, you know, and uh, there aren't necessarily the ones that win all the accolades. They make really great dinks. But it's all about the experience and that experience is the part of it that people forget about.
1: Yeah. I mean, like Violet Hour was super cool. I really liked the hospitality there. I had a good time. Um, I think one of my favorite bars I've ever been to, that's not a cocktail bar at all, that was just like disgustingly awful dive. uh, called uh, It's not that but I'm not disparaging. It was super cool. It was just such a dive. It was so blue collar. It was called The Pink. It's in Buffalo, New York. Uh, and it's famous for just being this dive. i think the affectionate term or name for it is the stink if you're a local um but i remember going there like the last call bar and like 4 a.m bar and like i was staying in buffalo because like, i didn't have my passport i couldn't go to canada my brother was visiting friends in canada so i like figure out my life while he did that so i was wandering around town getting drunk and i ended up at the pink it was just the, the diviest bar ever they made like you know sandwiches on a flat top and in like a dim lit room that, that it was just it was intensely, it was intensely diving. And I had a great time. I, I love that place.
0: But. You know, circling back around to copycat. So that, like, I mean, that's one of the things that I remember about your bar as well is it's it, it's quite dim in there. You know, at late night, it's 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 not the kind of place where you even could take the Instagram cocktail pictures. Like you said, it's not the kind of place where you where you guys do that anyway. You're not over garnishing or anything like that. You couldn't if you wanted to. There's no light in there.
1: It's definitely a dark bar, but I think that's what we want. Like we want Devin's vision for it was always like, this is a bar. You can order anything you want here. Do we make amazing cocktails? That's up to you to decide. But like, we, we, we don't want to be that place. We want to be open for everyone. It's very much like a, a bar for, for the people. Um, And so, like I said, like we do make anything you want. Like it's nestled in a neighborhood in DC and Northeast, that is historically a little rough, and so a lot of our clientele are locals from that neighborhood who, who poke their head into this high-end cocktail bar, and they was like, "Can I get a drink here?" You're like, "Yeah, dude, absolutely." And like, we ended up like, you know, creating a really cool local following from a part of DC that you might not expect to be cocktail enthusiasts. But now, you know, those people come into our bar and they're like, "I know what I want. Last time I was here, I had this drink called a Charles Mingus, and I want that again. It's delicious." And like, it's people you wouldn't expect, and it's it it speaks volumes to. To how bars can be polarizing and kind of divisive to a lot of people, because we try and cultivate this air of mystique and almost pretentiousness, and that's not what Devin wanted for Copycat. Like his vision was always a bar for the people that makes good drinks. And you can definitely you
0: seeing that snapback happening now. And uh, you know, for the wine world is you know kind of famously done that, where wine snobs get so snobby it just turns everybody off the whole thing. And I think we were getting to that point in cocktails in like 2014, 15, 16. And we're definitely seeing a hard correction on that now uh, with COVID where everybody's dropped all pretense. We just want you to spend a little bit of money with us, please. But it's kind of a, it's it's interesting to see how everybody's adapted to that. You know, all the the fancy fine dining bougie places are kind of back to, hey, come and grab a, a bottle of cocktail. It's going to be awesome, but it's not going to be your, you know, rose hip infused tonic it's gonna be my favorite i gotta put that on a bumper sticker you know? <laughs> so sick of the era of the rose hip infused tonic
1: <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a thing i think a lot of people have had a, a wake-up call and like it's cool that we didn't really have to do that a copycat like devon's always been really good about cultivating this atmosphere and like it's it's great that's uh, one of the things i love about working there is that we are for everyone you know and uh with this new food-driven mentality like it's it is kind of restauranty um not totally it's still dim lit it's hard to see your food sometimes but it's, <laughs> it's it's great the food there now is delicious like devin loves to tell me don't don't talk about the food like that let them decide but like i think i think the food is great so
0: was the food before was um was sent up from downstairs right at least when i was there before is that the, still the same system you own the bar or i'm sorry you own the restaurant space downstairs as well
1: yeah. Um, so we, we have the whole building. Uh, it's our, it's kind of like that. Um, but the food has changed. We used to be much more small portions. It was street food, it was Chinese street food. And so it was different quality, different sizes, and it was a much smaller menu. Uh, we've definitely expanded it. Uh, it kind of mirrors our food menu over at Astoria, the new location in our brand. Um, so it's more specifically Szechuan with some Cantonese dishes. Um, so it's like big flavors, lots of numbing spices, lots of spicy spices um chilies are a big factor in what we do the the food prep there is like insane i respect the hell out of our kitchen staff oddly enough a lot of our kitchen staff are bartenders uh, who transition into the back Uh, we're revenue shares so it's there's no reason not to uh, which is another big part of why i love working there like we can go on about that in a minute but the, the food there is phenomenal um and it's a big part of of what we do um the prep is insane we make our own chili oil from scratch we make our own shiner oil from scratch so it's like everything about it is like as authentic and labor-intensive as it needs to be to be perfect. You know, it's it's a it's a very cool change to have a full menu of like I think we have like twelve dishes, uh, maybe a little I can't remember off the top of my head. But we have taken a lot of those old-school copycat dishes, tweaked them just enough, and increased the portion size to fit this new this new system. Um, but the food is, is awesome. Highly recommend it.
0: So how much of those, those like Chinese flavors kind of cross over into the cocktail program? I mean, obviously you guys flip your menu quite a lot, but as you mentioned, you know, like the numbing spices, and I'm always like a low, uh, I just love Szechuan peppercorns and all those things. And I've had a f- couple of really well-done drinks with uh, Szechuan peppercorns in them. It's tough because it numbs your palate. You don't want to kill anybody's palate, right, before they have a second drink. But um, yeah, I mean, do, do they have they served as an inspiration or is it kind of just something you've done before or they just leach their way in as each menu arises?
1: Uh, I think that the influence on the cocktails from the food is very minimal. We try and really stay true to this style of cocktail, but yeah. So like our, our cocktail program is very much traditional as far as the style. It gets a little bit more experimental with each menu, not every time it increases, but we're staying true to those classics. You know, we, we, we function within those recipe structures. Very rarely do we have a recipe that is completely new. Um, and then again, like the ingredients we use, the ingredients we use are the kind of days that anyone can do them at their house, like if you want to do it. And you can get these things at any bar. Like I think the most experimental thing we do is like water. Sandwich, please, dude, please. Sorry, my dog's crazy. It's a little corgi dachshund mix named Sandwich. What does, know.
0: yeah, his name's Sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> so I have two great.
1: dogs, it's Sandwich and Reuben. Reuben's a little shih tzu. Uh, But he's quiet (laughs) right now, which is good. Anyways. Yeah. Our, our, our ingredients that we use pretty much are what you can find anywhere. That's kind of the, it's almost a challenge. It's like, we're doing this with the most basic ingredients possible. The most experimental thing we use is, is apple water or watermelon juice. Like every season we do have some seasonal elements that we draw from, but we're not, it's, it's not about one thing that Devin loves to talk about is I don't want to make a drink that you can't get anywhere else. You should be able to get these drinks anywhere but we just make them our way. And that's what you're paying for is our attention to detail and our technique. So yeah. I do feel
0: like that's something that's, uh, that's kind of been lost a little bit, you know, of the kind of era where you could go into anywhere and call a drink, you know, with such specialized ingredients. It makes it very hard. If I really, yeah, if I fall in love with something that, you know, has your rose hip, and I can't necessarily get that everywhere. You'll never kind of accidentally stumble onto a classic drink and be famous for it forever, you know, like a cosmopolitan or something. <laughs> yeah.
1: It goes into our liquor selection too. Like we pretty much only carry one of everything. Um, we only have like four or five back bar whiskeys so you can choose from if you want to drink something on the rocks. It's not our rail. But again, like that means that our rail is really good. Like our rail is knob creek nine-year bonded. Like our rail is dope, but that means like again, we're our whole program is based around, you know the Petrovsky method, which has very rarely been doing crazy esoteric stuff. We want you to be able to order this drink anywhere or make it at least anywhere, but we just want you to experience how we do it. Um, which is why like we share, you know, we build off the Madrusian list. Like we, our recipes follow those same classic structures. You have your buck, your juice buck, you know, your, your juice sour, your sour, non-traditional sour. We, we fall in those structures with every cocktail we make almost. It's very rare that something was completely different. Um, that being said, we do have some crazy original stuff. Like, one of my favorites is um, the Moloko Plus. Uh, it's themed after the cocktail they drink in the Clockwork Orange before they have a taste of the old ultraviolence. So Devin made this drink, like, I don't, I don't even know how long ago, but it's equal parts, simple syrup, uh, Irish whiskey, and absinthe topped with milk. And it's so good. I order it all the time when I'm off work. It's delicious. But then we have the Moloko Plus number two and the number three as well. So we follow the same traditions of, like, small variations building off a cocktail and numbering them like we have lots of drinks like that um, Yeah, that, that's kind of the gist of it like we, we really want to be a program where it's not super esoteric it's not super convoluted there's not 15 bottle pickups you know we're not making house bitters like if there was a need for it, I'm sure we would we don't see it that way you know we sh- well, you and you've should you've also got
0: a, it. A, a kind of a tight space as well you couldn't do that you know um, Souther talks about that a lot, you know, more Maura Margo, it's just, you know, there's not room to have 45 different gin options in a small space like that, especially when you be working with efficiency. Um, you you did touch on it a bit, but um, I wanted to discuss a little bit, you know, kind of the um, unique pay structure there as well, because um, I know that, that your bar, and we talked about it in the episode with the Green Zone guys, um, you know, EJ and Chris talked about, uh, Copycat being a big influence on how they kind of developed and uh, built their bar um, with with Copycat in mind and the way that everything was done. And so would you mind talking about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so we're a revenue share. Um, a portion of all sales and revenue goes towards operational costs of the of the business. Um, and then the staff have a, a labor pool that we all draw from as far as our payments. So it changes every pay period based on how what our sales were. And we all have different, we have a point system to determine how much you make from that. Um, based on your responsibilities, your abilities, like what you're able to do if you're a driver, if you're a bartender, if you can do all the positions, you get paid a little bit differently. So we are very much revenue-based, kitchen as well. Um, And it's unique. And it's also made me lose faith in other businesses, which is kind of a negative. I can never go back to a normal system because I know that people are getting paid more because they're exploiting other people. Because people in the house, especially people of color and immigrants, are being paid wildly under what they should be. Line cooks making minimum wage you know, unable to get overtime because of a contract they were forced was signed to be in there when they, when they were hired. Well, like, That's insanity to me, and it's wrong. Like, it, it, I, I am a very firm moral belief in that. Like, so I can sleep at night knowing that where I work, we're all paid fairly, we're all paid evenly. Um, You know, if you don't feel like you're being paid right, you can have a meeting with the owners and discuss it and present your case, and they'll explain to you why you're being paid the way you're paid. And if there was a, a mistake, if they feel like you do, you know, deserve more, you will get paid more. Um, and it's very, very unique. And I think it's, I think it sets the curve for the industry because we are reaching a point where we're becoming much more self-aware, our voices are being heard. You know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily like a union level of like demanding, you know, equal treatment, but I think the industry in general is waking up to the fact that we operate off of exploitive practices.
0: This is the real trick, you know, in, in restaurants and bars is the, the hourly rate wage, right? You know, and we're seeing so many attempts um and, and to solve this this problem, you know server wage for those of you outside the United States or, or even in varies from state to state um, in the United States as well. Um, but for the most part server wages, you know, less than half less than a quarter of minimum wage in the in the states. And so uh, I know in Indiana, it's like that's $2 and 13 cents an hour now that's more than made up for in tips. And if it's not, then you have to make it up as an employer. But the issue falls into this um, is that we would all love to just shuck this tip system out the door. But the second you raise your price a dollar, you know, everybody's cries and screams, you know, they everybody wants to support the, the, the better pay until it comes out of their pocket, you know, and that's where, you know, Andy Ricker had issues with that um, in Los Angeles. Um, I know that they're I think, Bastianich might have tried it in New York. I always read all the articles about it. You know, everybody that's giving it a shot, like, "Oh, hopefully, this will work. Finally, we've solved this." And then, you know, a couple months later, just people don't get it because uh, the reality is that Americans are fucking spoiled and don't pay for the real the real cost of food or beverage. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, I think it's a, food shouldn't cost four dollars. It should be yeah, you know?
1: yeah. I think there's definitely a lot of factors that come into it that are that make it difficult to really swallow for a lot of people like they don't realize what it costs to make the food you're at the labor that goes into oh, it like oh, like i said before you shouldn't be able to make this stuff at home like that's kind of what you're coming out for is we're doing something special you can't do like that's that's kind of how i try and justify our prices for everything I mean, we we everything at profit get a 15 drinks and food um and like that's steep for some people but realize like do you know it goes into that chicken wing brine like one, they're all flats. One, one bone is removed and the meat is lollipop so they're tiny drumettes, And then we marinate them. And then we wok fry them with all these other vegetables that also took time to prepare with our chili oil, with our chilies that we hand crush, And like, like it's, the list is endless. Like that's why that dish costs
0: $15. On top of wok cooking itself, which is not an easy task to learn.
1: Exactly. And so like we do, we, we are a tips business as well. And those tips do factor into our, into our payment pool, but it's distributed evenly with the front and back of house. No one gets more or less because of their, because of where they, where they work. So that's kind of like the, the thrust of what I was trying to talk about is like, I can sleep at night and I don't think I could ever go to another restaurant or bar that doesn't do this because it's wrong. It's just flat wrong to me. You know? like So how long
0: have you been there? You said you couldn't go to anywhere else. I was going to say, because I, I wasn't, I, I don't know. We've talked several times in the last year, and we just never really talked about where you were working because last we chatted, I think you were still a destination wedding. Um, mostly, we just talk about Dune when you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a movie yeah. coming. There's a movie coming. I can't 2021,
1: wait. Twenty twenty one. They pushed it back. I'm so mad. I
0: know. Yeah. I, you know. I'm still think that. I, I mean, I hope they kill it. I hope it's a fantastic film because it hasn't. It hasn't been yet. But I still think that it, HBO should have nabbed the rights to it when they had the cha- shot. Because Game of Thrones was ending, it would have been just been perfect. It the whole feudal house is, is, you know, but I don't know, maybe it'll turn out I mean they're now saying it's two films, right? So that's good. Actually I went back to um um since lockdown, I've been doing the audible thing. So today I actually started doing again. I yeah, think I'm, this will probably be been, like the twentieth really time. Yeah, 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 too.
1: So um I've never listened to it though, it's it's good. Yeah. I I should try that, but um, yeah, I've been at Copycat for a little over a year. We were at the company for a little over a year. I joined in July of last year. Um, it feels a lot longer because of the amount that like we all work within this company and also because COVID made us work even more. We, before COVID, we were still working a lot of hours. Like I think typically the average person there was working four to five, 12 to 14-hour shifts, some of them even longer a week. And that was like a, a, your standard workload. Um, no one really worked more than five. I, I was voluntarily working more than that. But yes, yeah, so I've been at Copycat for a little over a year. Or Astoria and Copycat. I've transitioned to Copycat uh, when the COVID started. They wanted some they wanted a team there that could kind of develop this to go carry out enterprise without a whole lot of supervision. So I was trusted to do that, which is kind of a big thing. Uh, oh, wow. So really- you
0: were brought in to actually handle this.
1: Yeah. That's it was that's pretty wild. Dope. It was me and a team of three other guys they that were similarly considered. And uh yeah, we we were just kind of tasked to figure it out and we did, which is awesome and so cool, but it took a long time to really get right. But it's Great man, I'm, I'm super happy with what I do and where I'm at, and it's it's
0: awesome. We should be proud of what you accomplished because you know not 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 everybody's making it through. Um, you know, like I said in the beginning, you know we haven't gotten a lot of support from the government, and it just kills it kills me that they can come up off of a break to rush through a Supreme Court nominee, but they can't. Come off a vacation to uh, I, I rescue a small business. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I don't even right? want to
1: think about it. I'm so it's, it's so
0: long. I, I know. I mean, I mean, I've lost two restaurants now. One of them was a decade old, and I was just like, oh, "What do you do?" He's not, you can scream, but it's just—it's it's screaming into the void. There, yeah. It's not being heard. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you've made it
0: through, and you're pushing hard. I mean, yeah, you've got this kind of amplified political, you know, atmosphere around you. I know that in the bars, it doesn't really necessarily feel that as much but i mean obviously the city is charged and um and i've not seen it quite as charged as it has been the last 4 years
1: yeah um, it's weird working working in the city when there's so many politics that are at play like there's there was a, a giant rally for the right to prayer um people wanted to go back here to church, the right to worship they want to go back to church and there was like an extra 20,000 people just walking around the city no masks on videos of people out on the national mall like in close proximity in crowds no masks all singing and chanting and praying you're like dude this is can you not can you just go back to where you please don't like i i recognize your right to protest whatever please right now like right now this has to happen like not really great like in comparison to black lives matter protests where everyone was wearing masks everyone was handing out hand sanitizer everyone was being as careful as they could while they're in a crowd and, you know, you didn't see super spreader events stemming from the BLM protests. Like, it's just like cool, like politics. I, I get they're important, but it's weird living here. I don't really
0: No, you, you have to be in the uh, Rose Garden, I think, to get be at the super spreader events. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, you know, I, we're in, you know, I'm in the city, but, you know, it's, it's, I live about 20, 25 minutes south of the city in Indianapolis. And um, it is a far cry from 25 minutes into the city. It's, Where I live, it's definitely lots of Trump signs and no masks. It's it's been a weird
1: time to be in DC, especially with all that's happening. And like, eh, there's like parties for the the new Supreme Court justice. You're like, okay.
0: Oh right, yeah, that just happened. Yeah, wow, that's
1: yeah. There was like people like throwing parties in the street outside of the Supreme Court, and you're like, this is real life. Like, this is this is what we do now. Like, we're just cheering for somebody who's going to change everything potentially. Like, okay, okay. It's it's a weird place to
0: be. On top of the
1: pandemic. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. So, you've been there a year. What's next? I mean, you know, what what are you looking for for your career because you said you decided a, a long time ago that this was it for you. This is what you wanted to do. Um uh,
1: it's tough to say. I, um, I
0: know, especially now, right? I mean, t- two years ago everybody wanted to own their own place, but
1: <laughs> I mean, might, working, I
0: recommend you against that. <laughs> yeah,
1: working at Copycat has definitely changed how I look at owning a business. It it deterred me in certain ways, but in other ways have encouraged me. Um the team of owners who are there, they're, they're operating partners. They are there more than anyone. They work harder than anyone. They are they are the badasses, the aces that carry us and train us. Like Every one of the owners there are, are savages. They work so hard. They're so good at what they do. And it's inspiring. And it showed me a very different type of ownership that I haven't experienced firsthand before. It is a little bit discouraging because you always think like, oh, once you own a business, you can relax a little bit. Like, no. That will never happen unless you have a type of business where you can pay someone to operate it for you. And like, hats off if you can afford that. Like, that's that's tremendously cool. Right. And in which case, this is the
0: wrong industry. <laughs> no. Yeah.
1: So, I what I want to do after this, I don't know. Like, I'm I hope to be a copycat for a long time. Um, I really respect who I work for and work with. I respect their program and what their their ethics are. Devin is always emphasizing what ethics work ethics mean, and I admire what they've done in their program. And I hope to be there for quite some time. Um, ownership someday. Yeah. But what would I do? I don't know. This has been such a, like every place I work, I tend to drink the Kool-Aid a little bit, but this is, this Kool-Aid is pretty good. Um, I like what they do. And so what would I do different? Like, what, why leave? Why leave to open my own place? Why not just work through them and maybe someday operate for them? Like that would be a dream that I have is, you know, hopefully someday working my way up the ladder in this company so I can work with them to open my own place with them. Cause I like what they do. I like their style. I like their operation. And, that's kind of my hope, but I mean, I I, truly, I don't
0: know. Yeah. It's tough saying, you know, everybody's plans have changed so much and I don't know, it's been hard for me to get back in that right headspace. I know so
1: many new real estate agents, like it's unreal. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. That's the, um, the bartender equivalent of, uh, leaving the government to uh, spend more time with your family. Right. Exactly.
1: Right.
0: (laughs) Going to be a real estate. I want to go into real estate. No, you don't. Awesome, man. Well, I mean, I appreciate you coming on the show. I know I've taken up a lot of your time and your roommates
1: are, you know. Oh, dude, I really appreciate you reaching out. Like, this is a lot of fun. I love talking. Well, we've been meaning to do it for a
0: while. In fact, we were supposed to do this in March. Um, And I I, like I I never buy airline tickets ahead of time because my schedule changes so uh, erratically that I can't ever really necessarily plan on anything. But this year I had tickets purchased to, you know, both Tiki Oasis um, in March, it was supposed to be this great meetup with my friend that lives in Seattle. He was going to a conference in DC, and we were just like, I was gonna party it up. We had like an agenda. We're like, we're going oh, to this no. bar, right? An hour no. after we landed, all this. And then I had, you know, I had a show lined up with you and um, a couple other people. And yeah, of course, yeah, I think it was a, two weeks later, he, he texted me and said, Microsoft has canceled all all travel, so I can't go to the conference any longer. I was like, oh, well, man, that screws me. I already have my ticket bought and, you know, I'm not going to get a refund on mine. And uh, then a week later, everything got shut down. So there was no more concern about going hey, alone.
1: I'm super glad you're able to actually make this work. I'm glad we can finally, like, talk. And it's awesome and definitely an honor to be on your show, man. I appreciate you calling me.
0: Well, uh, so where can people find you guys on social media, um, whether, whether personally or the, the restaurant as well?
1: Uh, my Instagram is uh, Robin, Z-O-M-G. Uh, Just Robin Z-O-M-G, like, oh my God. Um, That's my Instagram. And then Copycat is just uh, Copycat Co. And I think Astoria is Astoria, D.C. Um, And yeah, um, we're doing a lot of cocktail classes online. If you ever want to join in on that, we do them twice a month. Uh, We'll teach you our technique. Uh, If you're in the area, we will actually uh, make ingredient kits and ice kits for you. So you can shake with our step-of-cell toolkits. So if you're interested in doing that, anyone, like, please feel free to reach out to me or to the appropriate Instagram handles. Um, yeah, it's pretty dope. You want to learn how to make drinks the way we do it, which is in the Petrovsky method to a certain extent. And it's awesome.
0: Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, we've seen a lot of that happening over the last eight months. There's a lot of everybody's gone online to kind of do their live feed, teaching you how to make cocktails. And it's been quite overwhelming, but I've seen a couple and there's Like, it's very precise, very cool and fun, which you know, yeah, is always it's, important. It's you cool. know? Yeah.
1: Like using what the pros use. Like we'll we'll give you the correct syrups. We'll give you the correct spirit. Like we'll give you everything. You can even buy our tools. Like the tools that we use behind the bar. So like you know, whatever you want to do. Like we're game. Um, but yeah, that's 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 the gist. of it. you can catch me there.
0: Awesome man. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on the show. taking your time out, and you know, I hope you guys the best, all the best. Yeah, I hope everything uh, we come out of this all all unscathed. Well, I guess we're not going to come out unscathed, but. But we've all learned a, a lot of good lessons. And, you know, the pivots, uh, it's, it's fascinating what you guys have kind of done to stay afloat and keep moving in a forward direction. And, and I wish you nothing but the best and, you know, give my best to the to the uh, owners. And, and I can't wait to sit, to sit at your bar again. Thanks, man. I, I can tell you, you'll be high on the list when uh,
1: <laughs> when this ends. It <laughs> means a lot. Well, I hope to see you soon, see you soon too. Appreciate it.